The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'd say that if Congress does succeed in repealing the 1991 and 2002 AUMFs, the Iraq AUMFs, I think that makes 2001 AUMF reform less likely. And I think that's simply just because it it takes some of the wind out of the sails of broader war powers reform. I think Congress will repeal those. It'll congratulate itself on taking this action on kind of low-hanging fruit, and then it's going to move on to other things. And I think recent events in Afghanistan make it even less likely that we're going to get 2001 AUMF reform. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for August 30th, 2021. Since January, talk about reforming the nearly 20-year-old 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force, or AUMF, that provides the legal basis for most overseas U.S. counterterrorism activities has once again been on the rise. While past efforts have generally failed to yield results, the combination of growing bipartisan disenchantment with the status quo and a seemingly supportive Biden administration had led some to believe that this is the moment in which reform might finally happen. But now, the collapse in Afghanistan has some wondering whether the Biden administration will still have an appetite for the type of risk that AUMF reform is likely to entail, especially given that President Biden appears to have doubled down on global counterterrorism efforts in recent public remarks. For today's podcast, I sat down with two leading experts in war powers, Professor Ona Hathaway of Yale Law School and Professor Matt Waxman of Columbia Law School. We discuss where the impetus for reform comes from, what AUMF reforms may be on the table, and what recent events mean for the future of reform efforts. It's the Lawfare Podcast for August 30th, AUMF Reform After Afghanistan. So I think most Lawfare readers and Lawfare Podcast listeners are very familiar with what the 2001 AUMF is in broad terms. You know, we know it's an authorizing statute for the use of force 20 years old or almost 20 years old at this point, and that it's been used in ways that have gotten perhaps increasingly controversial over the years. It's kind of been adapted, some would say stretched, some would say abused <laughs> to extend to different circumstances, depending on your your take about how how valid a view that sort of is. And Matt, since I have you on the line, I, I actually kind of want to go to you first, because if I'm not mistaken, you were actually working in the White House around 9-11 and when the AUMF got passed. 
Can you give us a little sense of kind of what the context was of the bill when it was kind of originally discussed, the kind of original tent and, and idea behind it and, and the situation it was intended to address or was addressing, you know, six days, I think it was after the 9-11 attacks? Sure. So as, as you said, the 2001 AUMF is enacted shortly after the September 11th attacks. In fact, it's it's drafted in just the, the days after and, and, and passed a week after, or signed a week, a week after the, the 9-11 attacks. Uh, and so it, it happens very, very quickly, is one point. It's also written very, very broadly. Nations, groups, individual states, not just that perpetrated the September 11th attacks, but also those that supported them, aided them, harbored them. Uh, so it's very, very broad in the way that it's written, uh, very deliberately so, since you know this is a, a time at which the Bush administration is still figuring out what the what becomes the war on terror, the global war on terrorism is going to to look like. And so it's written to give a lot of flexibility in that way. I also think, you know, one of the things that's probably also important in thinking about the 2001 AUMF is that while, while it's been interpreted and applied as a statute and read the way that lawyers tend to read statutes, you know, parsing the, the precise language of the terms. I think a big part of the story of the 2001 AOMF was that it was really passed as a way of Congress expressing political support for an aggressive response to the 9-11 attacks without adequate attention at the time to what exactly these terms were going to mean. And and we've seen, therefore, not surprisingly, that it's been stretched and pulled in lots of different ways as, as time has gone on. Well, let's jump ahead in time to that stretching and pulling, because we are here two decades later. And of course, we're here to talk a little about AUMF reform, an effort that has been ebbing and flowing really for over a decade now, at least in different in different phases, about people discussing about ways we need to adjust and change the 2001 AUMF, perhaps repeal it, perhaps repeal it and replace it, perhaps just cabinet and limit it in certain ways to result in an authorization that we feel is more either consistent with our policy goals or consistent perhaps with democratic and constitutional values. But a lot of a lot of the concern that comes from and a lot of the impetus for AUMF reform comes from the stretching and polling and the inter- way it's been interpreted and applied over those subsequent two decades. Ona, let me turn to you on that. Tell us a little bit about the big variables, the big ways we've seen the AUMF get pulled and and why they're so controversial, why some people feel that they are cause for reform? Well, from pretty early on, there were efforts to think about how the AUMF might be used, not just to address Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, and the threat emanating from Afghanistan, but whether that authority in the 2001 AUMF might be used for other counterterrorism threats. And the language of the statute 
was fairly vague. And, and as, as Matt rightly pointed out, for, for lots of obvious reasons, I mean, part of it is we didn't actually know for sure exactly who it was we were authorizing war against. We knew we wanted to go after those who were responsible for 9-11, uh, but we weren't 100% sure who exactly that was, because we're really talking a few days after the attacks. And the language is fairly broad and, and nonspecific, but it gets bred to be even broader nonspecific than it than it is, in fact, even when you read that text. And a, and a particular term that's kind of read into the authorization that's used so much that some people might imagine that actually is in the text, but it's not. And that is the term associative forces. So the 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 thought here was that not only does the 2001 authorization for use of military force authorize use of force against al-Qaeda and the Taliban, but that we can assume that it applies to co-belligerents of al-Qaeda and the Taliban, those who are, who are working together with them, that fall in this umbrella, associated forces. And this is a term that's sort of invented a few years after 2001, and then it gets adopted by the Obama administration initially really just for purposes of authorizing detentions, continuing detentions of uh, members of al-Qaeda and a few members of the Taliban um, at Guantanamo, um, but then gets adopted as a kind of broader justification for use of military force going forward. And that then turns on, takes on a life of its own. It becomes this kind of metastasizing force so that we're not just limited to al-Qaeda and Taliban, but any group that's associated with them. And there's some efforts to cabinet, Jay Johnson um, puts out a test that's sort of meant to be a somewhat cabining text, but that that has really been one of the crucial steps in turning the 2001 AOMF from something really meant to deal with those who attacked us on 9-11 into something much, much broader. So we're now about seven, eight months into the Biden administration, and it, like any administration, has the prerogative to adjust how it reads a variety of statutes, really. Often you see for the first several months of any presidential administration and a long policy process through almost every federal agency where they review their predecessors' policies, legal interpretations, uh, what have you, and say, okay, what do we need to revise? What do we need to take up on this? What should we leave behind? What should we bring with us? And the Biden administration is, is I think, by most appearances, still starting to go through this process. But we did see a few weeks ago a pretty notable hearing uh, featuring the legal advisor for the State Department, the acting legal advisor, I should say, the general counsel for the Defense Department, and Wendy Sherman, deputy secretary of state, talking about and laying out kind of for the first time the Biden administration's views of these AUMS and how they might be used. Oh, no, I know you spent some time with this hearing. Tell us a little bit, what did we learn there and have we learned elsewhere about what the Biden administration's views of this are? Is it different substantially from the Trump administration or prior administrations? Are there certain nuances that were introduced or is does it look like a fair amount of continuity with kind of the executive branch views that we've seen so far? Or do we just not yet know yet? Well, a little bit of both. So on the one hand, there was one important step that all three representatives of the administration took at this hearing, and they were very consistent on this point, which is they wholeheartedly endorsed repeal of the 1991 AOMF and the 2002 AOMF, that is the AOMF for Iraq. 
And they were unequivocal about their support for that repeal. They were unequivocal that no current uh, military operations depend exclusively on the 2002 authorization for use of military force. And, you know, again and again, in response to multiple repeated questions from members, said that it wouldn't have any impact on the capacity to defend the United States and its allies. That's certainly a change in position, um, the sort of wholehearted endorsement of just a straight up repeal of the 2002 authorization for use of military force, which is, of course, as I think most listeners know, different from the 2001 authorization. The 2001 authorization is one that came right after 9-11 and applies and now is used to support most of our military operations in the Middle East. The 2002 authorization was the authorization for use of military force in Iraq. And that was really meant to authorize the war to uh, address the threat of weapons of mass destruction by the government of Saddam Hussein. So that's an important step and, you know, very clear endorsement of that position, I think, you know, does open the door to that actually happening. On the 2001 AOMF, you know, they were a little more coy about their position, open to dialogue with the, with the, with the Congress was more or less the line. They didn't really want to kind of put anything clear out there as a position, didn't oppose entirely the idea of repeal and replace the 2001 AOMF, but also weren't really prepared to sort of lay out a blueprint. There were a few ideas um, suggested. Wendy Sherman said, well, you know, if there's going to be a new AOMF, there has to be a process for adding groups, there has to be a process for adding countries, and then a process for periodically reviewing groups and countries which is a step, I suppose, in terms of, you know, at least being open to the idea that there might be a, a, a repeal and, and a replacement with an authorization that would have some of those features. And then the last thing I'll say that struck me from listening to the hearing was a greater emphasis than I might have expected, and certainly greater emphasis than you saw in the Obama administration and all of the officials um, who were testifying had worked in the Obama administration as well, greater emphasis on Article II authorities and a view that even if the president doesn't have authority from Congress under the AOMF, that he can do a lot of things with his Article II authorities. And, and President Obama, at least, and officials who worked in the Obama administration, tread more gingerly in that direction. Uh, the Trump administration was more willing to sort of go with Article II authorities whereas Obama had been more reluctant to embrace Article II authorities. And it seems so far, at least judging just from this and from some of the statements that were made, for instance, after the Biden administration's attacks on Iran-backed um, militias in Syria recently, uh, that they're more, they're, they're sort of more th full-throated endorsement of Article II authorities. So that's going to be interesting to see how that develops. And in that sense, there's actually more continuity with the Trump administration than one might have expected. Matt, you you spent a good part of your early career, I think it's fair to say, uh, you know, doing a bunch of different roles, legal and policy roles in the Bush administration. And of course, I know you you spent time with the Defense Department as well, the Obama administration. Let me ask you both, but, but I'll start with Matt. Tell us a little bit about the executive branch process that operates around the AUMFs and around Article II authority, which Ona has already alluded to, which has a 
kind of a handoff relationship or sometimes an overlapping relationship with these AUMFs, both in terms of what they authorize and in terms of the political and bureaucratic dynamics that often exist in terms of how the administration approaches a particular question. Um, so Matt, let me start start with you. You know, How do these AUMS fit into those interagency process and Article II authorities? And, and what does that tell us about the way that we need to think about how they're used and how Congress might be, should be designing them to reflect how the executive branch uses them? Yeah, there, you know, there's, there's there's a lot there that I think to to unpack, and Ona re- referred to some of this al- already. But of course, in in the background to this discussion of 2001 AUMF, 2002 AUMFs, should they be reformed? Should they be repealed? As a background to to all this is the fact that the executive branch across administrations, across uh, party divides asserts and exercises very, very broad, unilateral Article II power to use force. And so any thought of, you know, what would a post-AUMF reform world look like needs to take account of the fact that the, the president is still going to be relying on or is still going to be asserting very, very vast power to use military force. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Um, so that's uh, uh, one, one point to keep in mind. A second point to keep in mind is that any executive branch legal team is going to work with the statutes, the resolutions that they've got on the books. And, you know, I look at some of the arguments that Ona referred to earlier, like the Obama administration's application of the 2001 AUMF to ISIS. And I think, you know, now that I'm sort of sitting here as a law professor at Columbia, I can, you know, have the luxury of saying, well, that does, that argument seems, seems pretty thin. That seems pretty weak. If I were in the executive branch, I'd make that argument that the 2001 AUMF applies to ISIS because that's a resolution, that's a law on the books that I have to work with. And I'd be trying to make the best case I could uh, for my client that counter ISIS operations stand on solid legal ground. Um, And so I think that the general lesson there is that any executive branch legal team is likely to look for ways in which they can, you know, what we've described as sort of pulling and stretching of AUMFs, that's, I think, a general tendency that the executive branch is going to, is going to perform, is going to, to exercise. There is, you know, there are some factors that push against that right now. AUMF reform is hot. Uh, it's a politically sensitive issue. And so we may see the executive branch relying less on AUMFs if it doesn't have to. We may see the executive branch being a bit more cautious than it was earlier in the war on terror uh, when it comes to stretching or, or stretched interpretations of the AUMF. So there are some 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 countervailing factors here. But in general, we can expect the executive branch to 
try to interpret these broadly and flexibly to meet the the needs of their clients. And then lastly, uh, or or third point I would just add is the executive branch also, executive branch lawyers aren't going to want to decide things that they don't need to decide. Um, They're going to want to keep their legal options open. And so I I think that's also a, a reason why we see, even if the Biden administration is more open than, let's say, the the prior administration to AUMF reform. They're going to be pretty, I I think, pretty cautious in what they're putting forward uh, as as actual concrete proposals. That raises a a separate question of of, of what the, the most recent events in Afghanistan mean for possible AUMF reform. I, I personally think they make 2001 AUMF reform much less likely, but we can we can we can come to that later. Oh, I definitely want to come come back to that later because uh, that's that's a big part of the conversation. But let me let me push you a little bit further on one aspect of what you mentioned that I I think is interesting and and something that people who haven't worked in the executive branch may not fully consider, and it's something Congress needs to be considering here, and that that is this you know opportunity structure and the way it intersects between statutory authorization like the AUMS and article 2 and that is let's say you are a congressional lawyer um which i don't i don't know if you've been here your career i don't think you have but uh but perhaps I you have and i i haven't okay so that, that's good me neither but i like to pre- i like to play one on the radio sometimes so let's pretend we are congressional lawyers how should we be thinking about the trade off between a statutory authorization to say okay we have to do some sort of there's a military activity that we agree the president should be able to pursue, and we're going to authorize it uh, by providing a statute, which has the effects, it's worth noting, the limits that I think the kind of uh, mainstream executive branch view um, right now says that at least, you know, where we're not talking about acts of self-defense, um, certainly against the homeland, potentially against troops overseas, that statutory authorizations aren't limited by nature, scope, and duration of a conflict. So if you're Congress, you can authorize all sorts of conflict of a large scale. If you're executive branch acting under Article Two, you're limited in the nature, scope, and duration of which you can uh, of the scale type of operation can do. There are other limits too about the types of interest, things like that. Um, but just to, just to to lay out that kind of caveat there, the question then becomes: What are the trade offs for Congress in in one option or the other? If you have there's an, an activity there that the executive branch may be able to make an Article Two claim for, but maybe it's on the periphery, and that or Congress could authorize. What should you be thinking about there? Um, in particular, I'm wondering, you know, what does Congress do in terms of its ability if it has a concern to kind of, if it does, if it's worried about what the executive branch is going to do, what are its opportunities to either restrict or limit it, depending on how the exe- which direction the executive branch ends up going? That's a great question. Uh, I think the, the first thing to point out is that whereas the executive branch often has a lot of internal debate, there's a fair amount of consistency in the position of executive branch lawyers on these matters, whereas Congress has a a, a much wider, more diverse range of views. And that's one of the challenges of AUMF reform generally. I think it also makes it hard to sort of characterize what is the congressional view on this? What's the legislative branch view or legislative branch approach compared to the executive branch one, which is there isn't really a, a single 
congressional legislative branch view. There's a range of views. And, uh, you know, even when you hear different members of Congress talking about AUMF reform, you see they have very different assumptions about what they expect to happen in the absence of legislative authorization for force. Some members of Congress will will take the position, if there isn't a legislative basis, the president ought to be very tightly constrained from using force. Other members of Congress would take the position that even in the absence of express legislative authorization, the president still has very, very broad Article II unilateral power to use force. And that's even a good thing. Uh, We want the president exercising that kind of discretion to use force. Uh, And depending on which of those sort of background assumptions and normative positions one has, that leads to different approaches to to AUMF reform or or what kinds of statutory reforms might make sense. So I I actually think one of the, the big questions looming over AUMF reform, war powers reform, and sort of these these other efforts, especially when we're talking about sunsets. And we haven't really talked about that yet, but many uh, reform proposals, especially for the 2001 AUMF call for imposing some sort of time limit, you know, that this is going to expire after two years or three years, uh, five years, whatever the, the, the time horizon is. But I, I think a big question is, what do, you, what do you expect and what do you want to write into the statute to happen at that expiration date? One possibility is the authorization evaporates, it goes away, but the president still has Article II power. He still has his presidential power that he can rely on in the absence of that statute. A, a very different drafting approach, a very different way of engineering this would be that at the at that expiration point, you, you might try to craft it so that it essentially becomes illegal to continue using force at that time. Like you might write in that no money, no appropriated funds may be used to support military operations beyond the expiration of that authorization. And that could lead to some very different results. Well, Matt's already teed up for us, I think, what is one of the big reforms ideas we see flowing out there, and that is this idea of a sunset uh, or a reauthorization requirement, depending on how you frame it and how you design what it is that comes next. Um, The idea being that for Congress to maintain a voice in uh, the scope of warfare and how authorizations are used, they need to be asked every once in a while to take a fresh vote on it. Um, and it's worth noting some of the context here is, uh, for those who, who don't follow, is because to override a presidential veto, which presumably if the president likes the way an authorization is being used, which they usually do because they're the ones using it, they would be able to, in theory, veto legislation that might seek to uh, rescind or revise or narrow an authorization that Congress felt they were using inappropriately. So having a reauthorization requirement, sunset requirement, gets around that and lets a simple majority vote ride instead of the two-thirds you need to override a presidential veto. Just a little more technical background, something worth bearing in mind on that. Ona, let me turn to you for what uh, some of the other reforms we're hearing, because we hear a couple of different baskets of ideas, of which there are multiple variations, of course. But what are the big baskets of reforms we're hearing about in regards to the 2001 AUMF? And, and where do they fit into the policy and political 
picture? Which ones seem to be highest priority or in your view, you know, to be the highest priority? Uh, and which ones seem to be hitting in political obstacles or policy obstacles that uh, make them more or less likely? Yeah. Before I get to that, I want to back up just a touch because I think it's really important to just situate the conversation a bit in kind of where we've been and why we are where we are. So it's important to remember that that Congress has basically done very little in terms of actually authorizing force. I mean, it really hasn't authorized force since 2002. So we're talking almost 20 years. All of those 20 years are years in which we have been at war in one way or another. And so we have the United States engaged in war and members of Congress have not taken votes on that. When the last authorization was passed, uh, by my last count, uh, which was in March of, of 2021, only 15 of the current members of the Senate had been in office and only 37 of the current members of the House. So this is really profoundly anti-democratic um, that we are you know, putting Americans at risk around the globe, spending trillions of dollars fighting a war that our members of Congress haven't taken a vote on. Uh, most of the members of Congress, the vast majority of members of Congress haven't voted on. And so I think part of what's informing this sense that something is deeply wrong is, is that, is that, is that left to their own devices, members of Congress probably will be just as happy not to take the votes because it means that they have to take on some political risk. And presidents are just as happy to be sort of left alone to make the choices they want to make. But that is quite inconsistent with our constitutional system, which gives Congress, uh, not the president, the power to declare war, and that allocates and shares the powers between Congress and the president. And so we've been living in a world where really it's the president that's been calling the shots and Congress has been ducking its responsibilities. So part of what's motivating this sense that it's, you know, it's been 20 years uh, since the 2001 AUMF uh, was enacted, and we really, as of this September, and we really need to um, have Congress weigh in and, and make some decisions about, about the direction that we should be going in. And you saw at that hearing that you mentioned, the SFR, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing that was held earlier this month, the members who voted on it said in that hearing, I voted on this and we never imagined it would look anything like it looks today. We had absolutely no idea that it would be used in the way it's being used today. So, so that's what's informing the sense that something's really wrong and something really important needs to change. Um, and just sort of going along is not really an option if we're going to retain our democratic system of government. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So there's kind of two buckets of, to, in answer to your question, kind of what reforms are people talking about? Here today, we're talking primarily about AOMF reform, but it's important to note that most folks who are talking about AOMF reform are also noting that it's one thing to deal with these authorizations that are floating out there. It's another thing to think more systematically about 
war powers reform more generally, because another piece of this problem here is, is that war powers are really out of whack and the war powers resolution has proven to be pretty ineffectual. And so most people who talk about reform say we need AUMF reform to deal with the immediate problems, but really to bro- deal with this broader systemic problem, we're going to need to be thinking about broader war powers reform. In terms of um, the kinds of reforms that are are floating about, obviously there's a lot of them. So, I mean, the first thing on, on most people's list is what this Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing was about, which was repealing the 91 and 2001 AUMFs, which are pretty much defunct, but that people fear will sort of raise their ugly head now and again, and it's just best to get them off the books to make it less likely that a future president will resort to uh, using them for a kind of half-cocked argument to try and support a use of military force. Um, when the Soleimani strike was taken by the Trump administration, for instance, they relied primarily on Article 2 authority, but also gave a kind of half-hearted nod towards the 2002 authorization. And I think most people feel like that was that was pretty inappropriate. It wasn't a, a, a fair use of the 2002 AUMF and just sort of a sign of the mischief that leaving that on the books can do. So that's sort of item number one. Item number two is, is repeal and replace the 2001 AOMF. People can say that easily and everybody agrees that needs to happen. The question is what, what exactly the replacement looks like. I think to answer that, there are a few things people have talked about. One is a reauthorization requirement or sometimes called a sunset. My own view is if you're going to do anything, that is the number one thing you've got to include because we've learned that if you don't include a sunset, these things just sit on the books and just expand out of control without, without any kind of curtailment. And if you're going to reauthorize, you need to reauthorize with a requirement that the president come back to Congress to get authority to continue it and to reassess whether the authorities have been granted or the appropriate ones. The other aspect of 2001 AOMF reform that, that people agree on, or at least I think most agree on, is that the AOMF needs to much more specifically define who the enemy is. So right now we're operating on this fairly broad language, and then all these things have been read into this language. So as I mentioned, the associated forces language has been sort of read into it, but it doesn't actually appear in the text. And there are different views about exactly what this defining the enemy should look like. My own view is that we should actually have lists of groups against whom force is authorized. And then there's a question as whether it should be geographically limited or not. And then there probably needs to be a process for reassessing that over time, both for the administration to ask to add groups and then for Congress to periodically review whether groups should be taken off of the list. And then third, most agree that there should be clear reporting requirements to the appropriate committees, that it's not clear that SFRC and House Foreign Affairs Committee always getting all the information they feel like they need in order to assess whether the authorities are being used appropriately. Part of this is a problem on Congress's part, that there's not information sharing across the various committees. Committees, Some committee is getting information, but not all the committees are getting all the information. And the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and House Foreign Affairs Committee tend to be the ones who are almost always left out of the loop, um, but they're the ones to whom War Powers Authority and AUMF Authority is granted. So it's an unfortunate that they are the ones that are often not not in the room when briefings take place. So more information needs to be provided. And ideally, reporting that is not just behind closed doors and not just entirely classified, 
but that there's um, some public reporting so that members of Congress can speak about it with their constituents and with the public. And then there may be classified briefings and classified annexes, but, but some of this so that so the public, not just members of Congress, but the public has some idea what's being uh, done in their name. So those are some key AOMF reform priorities. Then there's a the whole separate question of war powers reform, which I'm happy to, to talk about, but that's its own kind of complex uh, bag of tricks that we have to separately think about how to how to reform the broader structure within which these AUMFs are, are operating. The war powers conversation, definitely something warrants discussion, but uh, probably we'll save for another podcast and for better or for worse, uh, for simply for time constraints. Um, but but to come back to the 2001 AUMF reform idea, I, thank you, Anna, that's really useful to go through those ideas. And I think it's worth noting, to my knowledge, we don't really have a super concrete proposal kind of on the books that's providing the center of the conversation. Instead, we've seen an array of proposals in Congress over the years, academic proposals, which is why we have this kind of menu of options. But there's no one fixed package that's really the center of debate uh, right now. Matt, I, I want to turn to some of these current events that we've we've mentioned that bear on this debate. Because so far, we have seen just one real debate about AUMF reform. And that has centered on what Ona's already mentioned in her discussion of the recent hearing before SFRC, the repeal of the two Iraq AUMS, 1991 and 2002, uh, regarding the first Gulf War and the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. Tell us a little bit about how, at least in your view, the fact that that measure looks on track to pass the Senate. It's already passed the House. You know, all indications are that they have 60 votes in the Senate, although, you know, that's not necessarily locked in stone and that could change before it gets a floor vote. But that seems to be where the numbers are falling at the moment. If repeal goes forward on those measures, what does that mean for other AUMF reform, particularly the the much, I think it's everyone would agree, a much trickier nut to crack of 2001 AUMF reform? Does it help it or does it hurt it? Yeah, I think it hurts it. Um, and so, so here's here's my take on the Iraq AUMFs and 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 how that debate interlinks with the 2001 AUMF, which I, I think is the much much more significant one. And even more significant than that would be some of these proposals for sort of broader war powers uh, reform, which we'll we'll save for another podcast. But for the two Iraq AUMFs or I should say AZUMF, uh, the 1991 and 2002, my view is they should be repealed. We, do, we don't need them. The arguments for keeping them are weak. However, I, I would say the, the benefits of repealing them are often, therefore, also overstated. Um, I, I think repealing them is, is good you know, legislative hygiene, but sometimes it, it's talked about as a sort of a significant step in rebalancing the relationship between the branches and and Congress reasserting its its prerogatives when it comes to to, to, to war waging. And I think that vastly overstates it. It's, it's good legislative hygiene, but it doesn't fix the fact that Congress's position is weak when it comes to flexing its constitutional prerogatives. And cleaning out defunct AOMFs or repealing them isn't going to do that much to, to rebalance it. And in fact, I'd say that, um, and this is a, a, a political argument, I'd say that if Congress does succeed in repealing the 1991 and 2002 AUMFs, the Iraq AUMFs, 
I think that makes 2001 AUMF reform less likely. And I think that's simply just because it, it takes some of the wind out of the sails of broader war powers reform. I think Congress will repeal those. It'll congratulate itself on taking this action on kind of low-hanging fruit, and then it's going to move on to other things. And I think recent events in Afghanistan make it even less likely that we're going to get 2001 AUMF reform. Oh, no, I want to come and take your get your views on this, but let me add one one aspect to this question that and that's the issue that that Matt's mentioned, which is what we've been seeing over the last week or two, which is the withdrawal, both the with military withdrawal from Afghanistan, which we've all seen coming for, for since April when President Biden confirmed that we were on track to do that. But also in the last two weeks, the collapse of the state of Afghanistan was turned into a fairly chaotic process involving very uh, heart wrenching scenes at. Kabul airport, and perhaps most notably, a defense by the Biden administration of the defense for withdrawal that has gone back and said a big reason, at least by one one aspect, one aspect of the logic seems to be a big reason we need to withdraw from Afghanistan is because it is not actually where the terrorist threat is. Um, and in his remarks, one of his sets of his remarks, actually a few of them, defending the withdrawal decision, President Biden said, because we have terrorist threats in Yemen and Libya and Syria in other places that we need to address that are a bigger threat. And we do that through an over-the-horizon capability. And he used this kind of verb of metastasizing, this idea that it's a verbiage that we haven't heard really, I think, in a couple of years around this this sort of fight, um, which is the idea that Al-Qaeda kind of could pop up in different places and is, is geographically expanding to, to different areas. And then, of course, noted that if the Taliban were to allow al-Qaeda or somebody else to come back to Afghanistan, that the United States would would hold them accountable through military action and, and use the over-the-horizon over capability to presumably eliminate whatever terrorist threat may arise. It's a, it's a different vision, I think, than some people might have expected the Biden administration to say so explicitly and forcefully uh, in terms of the future of use of military force. How does both the 91 and 02 AUMF repeal and then this pretty, you know, I think interesting and dramatic set of statements by the Biden administration feed into the political dynamics around this reform. Does it seem like, like it's going to make it much harder or is that overreading some of the dynamics that, that are at play here? Yeah, it's a great question. And obviously I'm a legal scholar um, and, uh, and, you know, not a political analyst, but, but I've been watching these things for some time. I mean, I guess on the question as to whether the repeal makes it more or less likely, I'm not sure it has a huge impact one way or the other. Um, I mean, I think there's an argument to be made that if you do the 2002 and 1991 AOMF repeal without replacement, it's confidence building. It's it's a way of flexing Congress's muscles. And those muscles have atrophied a lot over the last two decades and kind of getting them back up and running could be a kind of important step. And it does clear away at least a few issues. There's still people who are attached to the 2002 AOMF. I don't hear a whole lot of folks uh, complaining about getting rid of the 1991 AOMF. There's still a few members who, who, who worry about getting rid of the 2002 AOMF, even though members of the administration sort of have clearly stated that no current military operations um, rest on it and that they don't envision any future military operations to rest on it. Um, so, so it does kind of clear away at least one set of, one set of issues. Now, you know, 
this vision that that Biden laid out of kind of metastasizing terrorist threats around the globe is pretty troubling. And and I were obviously troubling in and of itself, but troubling that if that reflects the view that he intends to bring going forward to kind of the posture of the United States in, in the world. I think that we really are long overdue for a conversation about what is really our fight? You know, what really is it worth to the United States to be engaged in military operations around the globe? And which of these fights really are ones that we should be a part of? And, you know, is it really helping matters honestly, to, to drop bombs in these places, because mostly our, our capacities in a lot of these countries, not entirely, but, but largely is in our air power. And um, there's only so much you can do from the air. And we've also learned that you can make a lot of mistakes from the air, no matter how careful you are, no matter how much you try to make sure you're not killing civilians you know, there's a lot of evidence that we've killed a lot of civilians in these countries who had nothing to do with um, terrorism. And that creates its own resentment and anger and frustration against the United States and, and foments anti-Americanism and resentment of the West and unwillingness to, to uh, you know, work together with the United States and Western allies um, to try and make positive changes in these places. And a lot of the social scientific research on how to combat terrorism says nothing about the value of dropping bombs on people. It's, it's very much more about the value of creating rule of law institutions and in places where terrorists have been defeated. It's about the importance of um, providing access to you know, opportunities, not just economic opportunities, but really opportunities for people to feel like they're being treated fairly by their government in a variety of ways. Um, there's really fantastic work by Mara Revkin that is, I think, has really changed my views about how we should think about counterterrorism and and it really emphasizes the value of building institutions, local institutions on the ground um, for policing and effective security for people. And that's the best way to make people much less willing to support terrorist um, organizations when they want to, to take over cities. And, and, and we're not doing much of that when what we're doing is we're investing money in military operations. So I was disheartened to, to hear that. You know, I, I hope that doesn't reflect a general view of the administration. I hope to some degree that's a that that's a bit of posturing and trying to show, you know, we're not weak, we're ready to fight, you know, that that that's a sort of effort to counter a message that that we're sort of turning tail and, and going home from Afghanistan and that's signifying weakness. The administration I know is working hard on a lot of these kinds of matters, you know, on the ground um, and behind the scenes. But but I would love it if if the messaging could could reflect that and if actually where we invest our money and time and energy and treasure and intelligence is really towards building those on the ground institutions that I think in the end are really what's going to make the difference in defeating terrorism uh, much more so than than continuing to drop lots of bombs in, in, in already very destabilized places. You know, Una's, I think, rightly pointing out some of the the important links between these legal debates and the policy and strategic debates about uh, American force. And uh, there's, uh, let's just say, I, I have a very different perspective on U.S. military operations and their utility than 
Una did. This isn't the the probably the podcast to debate all of those, but I do think it is important to talk about how very closely related to these legal debates are, are these policy or strategic debates. I mean, one reason why this is one of the most you know, for, for those who want to reform war powers, this is one of the most kind of propitious moments in two generations to do so, because you have this kind of moment where public opinion is turning against interventionism from both the right and the left. You have concerns uh, about presidential decision making. You have concerns about the adequacy of internal checks on executive branch decision making and so and so on. I'd want to inject some caution, though, into an effort to, to, to take those factors, to take what we're seeing in the Middle East uh, and Central Asia and counterterrorism operations and using that, though, as a kind of fulcrum for, for thinking about broader war powers reform, uh, because that same framework for presidential use of force is also important to how we manage crises with China, how we manage security in East Asia, in Europe, how we manage alliance relationships and so on. And it is very hard to get this right. Um, and there are big dangers to, to, to getting it wrong. Uh, I worry personally that at a moment when that we're at a moment where the United States I think risks going too far in pulling back from its international leadership including the role it plays in deterring threats and, and and reassuring allies and I worry that overhauling war powers could contribute unintentionally or intentionally to that retrenchment so these are policy arguments not legal ones but I think they're important to thinking about these debates no, thank you for that. And I, you know, it is true. I, I think inevitably the law and the policy debates are are often very intermingled in this area. And that is ultimately what, you know, it is Congress's job, I guess, in the first and the executive branch after after they have the legal framework in place to to evaluate. And a big part of the debate that, that perhaps needs to happen as much as um, you know, the narrow look at statutory tools, also the broader kind of policy questions, which I think leads me to to kind of a closing question I, I want to put to both of you, which is that we are, you know, it sounds from our discussion like we are both in a moment where it seems like there are many of the political factors uh, have aligned or may have aligned to allow for reconsideration of some of these fundamental questions in Congress because of the partisan dynamics and a, a White House that seems fairly supportive, uh, at least rhetorically, for reform in this area, although, again, not, not very firm on specifics as of yet. But then we are also in this moment where it seems like the White House, at least around the AOMF picture, may have a certain strategic vision that that would seem to lean fairly heavily on a lot of what the AUMF already does. In that sort of environment, if that's really where we are politically, where do you think Congress should focus its attention? Is it on low-hanging fruit in the AUMF orbit? Are there aspects of reform that even if the Biden administration really felt like it needed to pursue these operations and was going to lobby for the authorities to do so, that it should get on board with or, or seems likely to get on board with? Or is really the focus on the use of force authorization perhaps too narrow? Should Congress be stepping back and looking elsewhere to say, here are the other sets of issues we need to look at and that they may get a bigger return on investment in? Oh, and let me start with you and then Matt, I'll turn it to you to close out. 
Well, that's a lot of questions there. I mean, I, I think that the, the number one issue to my mind here is that Congress has just been totally checked out and really has not played a role in serious conversations about what our um, national policy should be with regard to use of force abroad. And what has happened in the intervening time is that, to use Joe Biden's um, own wording, our use of military forces metastasized along with the spread of, of a lot of these groups. And it's time for us to have that conversation about what role the United States wants to play in the world. And that's a policy conversation that should be had between the executive branch and Congress and the American people to think about what is the what it should be the future of U.S. involvement in the world. And do we want to be involved as kind of policemen around the world? And that should in- include everything from, you know, what we've really been focusing on here, which is troops and use of military force abroad. But we also need to have a serious conversation about the future of cyber and, you know, the growing use of more um, both by our uh, opponents and by the United States of kind of more forceful uh, cyber operations abroad. Russia in particular has has really had a number of recent cyber operations that have really been destructive. Uh, we should also be talking about the increased use of support for both state and non-state actor groups abroad through arming them and providing them intelligence and weapons. Um, that's not something we've had any serious conversation about um, and has become a really important part of U.S. military strategy abroad. So, I mean, I think we need a much more capacious look at what our vision is for the United States going forward. And and I think that this is a conversation we just haven't had as a country. And, you know, the AOMF might be the vehicle, uh, repeal and replace of the 2001 AOMF might be the vehicle for, for a conversation along those lines. I'd like to see us talk about more seriously about war powers reform as well, um, just because I think the consensus on both the left and the right is that that's completely broken. You know, so I think I think these things all need to happen. Where do we start? I mean, I think starting with repeal of the 91 in 2002, AUMFs is not a bad place to begin. I think the next step is looking at the 2001 AUMF. And, and if nothing else, um, one possibility that was raised at the hearing that we mentioned earlier from earlier this month is just putting in a sunset or a, a reauthorization requirement into the 2001 AUMF, even if you did nothing else, at least would put a kind of and stop into that so that we know that there's a date certain on which we have to have made a decision about how we're going to proceed. That might be one sort of action forcing mechanism, even if we're not prepared yet to settle on a, a solution as to what it means to replace the 2001 AOMF. And then with war powers reform, and there's a number of things that I've endorsed, but I think at the very minimum, it's become really clear that we have no idea what hostilities means and hostilities is a fulcrum on which that whole resolution turns. So at a minimum, we really ought to be clearer about that. And even just passing a clear definition of hostilities would be an important step forward. So there's big reforms that we can make, but we can make shorter, smaller steps in the right direction. And I think even if Congress does anything, it will be a lot more than it has done for close to 20 years. And that would be a step in the right direction. Matt? So uh, let me conclude with a a couple of points. Um, First, as I mentioned before, I'd support repealing the Iraq AUMFs. I've also argued that we should reform, revise, the, or amend the 2001 AUMF, and I'm quite open to the idea of a sunset. However, I do want to 
caution that, um, you know, I, I think sometimes when there's discussion of, of sunset provisions or when there's talk of, of reforming war powers to make sure that Congress at the front end of military conflicts is more involved in, in decision making, I think sometimes there's uh, this over-idealized vision of what that congressional deliberation looks like or, or would look like, especially in an era of, of hyper-partisanship. I mean, I, I, I study the history of war powers, and the record is not good going back all the way to the War of 1812, where the, the war declaration process didn't deliver on this promise that, you know, if, if Congress makes the decision to go to war, that it's going to reflect this kind of careful, strategic decision-making and, 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 and weighing of costs and benefits. And are we prepared and are means and ends well aligned? Uh, sometimes there's this idealized vision of statesmanship and careful strategic deliberation that I think has been the exception, not the rule to congressional decision-making. That's not to say that this isn't something that we should strive for and that we don't need to reform war powers in some ways, but let's be realistic about what it's going to look like. Um, so that's, that's, that, that's one point. A, a second point I'd make is I actually think Scott, to, to your question, where should the action be? Where should the focus be? I think too much attention is given to AUMF reform and this issue of how do wars start. And if I were thinking about where should Congress be spending its energy and frankly upping its game, I think it's more in overseeing how wars are conducted once they've begun than than this I, I think overemphasis on on war initiation and authorization at the front end. And in fact, I think kind of fixating on congressional authorization of conflicts actually risks distracting or or relieving lawmakers from the important duty of of overseeing their their conduct. Congress has a range of tools available to shape and restrain how wars are conducted. These include hearings, spending bills, actions to shape. Uh, public opinion, and 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 importantly, you know, uh, unlike legislative overhaul, some of these tools don't even require Congress as a whole to act. They can be wielded by individual members or committees, or, or, or especially members who hold key committee positions. So, I think a first step to boosting Congress's influence in this area, you know, if we're talking about exercising atrophied muscles, I'd rather see it first in the overseeing ongoing conflicts rather than focusing on reforming how we initiate military intervention. Well, we will unfortunately have to leave the conversation there, but uh, I'm sure this is an issue we are going to have opportunity to revisit in the future. Until then, Matthew Waxman, Ona Hathaway, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Scott. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. Also, to gain access to our weekly Lawfare Live online discussions, an ad-free version of our podcast and other benefits, consider supporting Lawfare on our Patreon account at www.patreon.com lawfare. This podcast was engineered by Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo and edited by Jen Pachia Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. 
As always, thank you for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.